In the 21st century, global news is bigger, faster, more complicated, and frankly a whole lot scarier than ever. It's hard to know which stories to pay attention to, or how to make sense of it all. Don't worry too much though, because we've got you covered. We're hardcore international relations nerds, and we're here to deliver a lighthearted dose of context and analysis to your podcast app, week after week. We're reading the news so you don't have to. We are The Elucidators. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of The Elucidators. We are coming at you on September the 10th, Tuesday, this week. My name is Steve Pally. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How are you doing, Sooms? Doing well. How are you, Steve? I'm Actually, doing... I take it back. I'm entirely confused. Uh, you're confused? Why would you be confused? So here's what went down. Uh, over the weekend... The president of the United States revealed that he was going to have, so this is Saturday night, he reveals that he was going to have secret peace negotiations with the Taliban and the Afghan government. These would be separate talks that would take place at the same time, and they would happen in Camp David, Maryland. He revealed this by announcing their cancellation <laughs> on, on Twitter. <laughs> You're joking, right? I, I could not be more serious. And to, to wit about my confusion, uh, this morning, his, he, his national security advisor, John Bolton, was fired or maybe resigned. They don't know. There isn't a clear story on what happened. John Bolton has said both that he offered to resign last night and has not really entirely pushed back that the president asked him to resign this morning. And the White House is saying- Stop right here, all right? Like, this is hilarious. You're really funny. Uh, But none of this actually happened, right? 100% happened. And they're saying, the White House is saying that John Bolton is out because of policy differences, namely that he was, the president wants to negotiate a peace agreement in Afghanistan there's also an Iranian issue, but most re- most pressingly, the president wants to negotiate this peace agreement that he canceled over the weekend. And because John Bolton doesn't want to negotiate with the Taliban, he is out. So to recap, the president was going to have secret peace negotiations with the Taliban. Then he, he announced that these secret things were happening by canceling them which is what his national security advisor would have wanted to happen. And now his national security advisor is canned. Oh man, you're serious. I couldn't have made that up. You literally could not have made that shit up. No. Like you couldn't have done it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I would have reacted uh, if I hadn't been reading the news along with you. Um, And yeah, all this stuff happened. Um, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about Afghanistan and the now revealed and moribund simultaneously uh, U.S. Taliban peace process. Um, right. Wow. So, Where do we even start? Okay. Uh, I'm going to do two things to start us off. One, full disclosure, we're, we're going to touch upon but not go into great detail 
about the history of modern uh, Afghanistan because it's frankly more than this one podcast can hold. Yeah. Two, I think we'll start here with this question. Uh, Steve, what do you do about an 18-year-old conflict that you are stuck in that you have n- all previous strategies and tactics to win or change the, the nature of this conflict have proved unlasting. They have not been permanent. What do you do about an 18-year-old war that you can't seem to move into an agreeable place for you to then no longer be in that war? I don't know. It sure sounds to me like you're describing a lost war, a lost conflict. Uh, If you're the United States, when you lose a war, what you do is you declare victory and go home, traditionally. Uh, We've done that a few times. Can you give an example of that, Steve? Yeah, sure. So uh, the conflict in Vietnam, uh, we declared peace with honor, signed a peace deal with uh, the North Vietnamese, which lasted, oh, I suppose two years before we were then evacuating off the roof of the embassy in Saigon, which has been depicted very nicely in uh, musical theater format among other media. <laughs> yes. Um, so this has been, it's been an acceptable way in recent American history to end a intractable, a very difficult to manage conflict. You come to a point where you say, this is not worth it. There isn't a clear path to victory. So let's cut. And let's do it in a way that gives us peace with honor. Right. The idea is basically, well, we made this open-ended commitment that we probably shouldn't have made. It escalated. We saw that we were beating our heads against a wall. Uh, And so we need some way to save face and exit and cut our losses. I think that the American people, just as they were in the 70s, are now very, very sick of the situation in Afghanistan, even though our commitment there is not even close to the same scale as it was in Vietnam, where we had hundreds of thousands of troops. We only have 14,000 troops remaining in Afghanistan. Today, we have 14,000. We have 14,000. There have been times in the past, uh, like during the Obama administration, where we had ramped up to over 100,000 troops. But that is now a distant memory. We're at 14,000 troops. We've been training the Afghan National Army uh, for 18 years now. We've been putting serious resources into it for about 15 years, and we haven't gotten very far. When you say we haven't gotten very far, what does that mean in terms of the Afghan army? Where are they? Well, so what that means is that there is an Afghan National Army. Uh, There are about 200,000 troops, and it does have some capability, particularly in special operations. So like commando strike forces and stuff like that for taking out hostage situations and terrorists and what have you. Uh, In terms of actually holding and controlling territory or conducting offensive operations with like battalion sized groups of troops. So hundreds or thousands of troops moving into enemy, enemy territory and capturing it. They are simply not capable of doing that. Uh, They're not well-trained enough. They have low morale. They're not really paid well enough or equipped well enough. And uh, the Taliban are just much better fighters than they are. So mostly what these guys do is they sit in their bases and they get blown up by suicide bombers, after which more of them desert. (laughs) So Afghan National Army, not good for much. 
uh, without significant, significant allied support, meaning the Americans and other NATO troops, uh, particularly air support. Without airstrikes, the Afghan National Army isn't worth a whole lot. Okay, so the Afghan the Afghan National Army is not great. Let's. Why does the Afghan National Army matter right now? Right. So the idea was um, we would basically build the Afghan national government, so a multi-party democracy in Afghanistan that had its own army to protect it. Uh, and these guys would hold elections and they would be a real state with a real army and be able to stand on their own. And we could basically more or less take off and go home and maybe send them money and weapons and stuff like that, that they could uh, stand on their own two feet. That has not happened. It's unclear what would happen if the United States were to disappear overnight. The most likely outcome would be a renewed civil war between the Afghan national government and the Taliban, followed by probably the Taliban winning a military victory in some number of months or years. Okay, so what you're describing to me is a situation where there are two factions, two big factions in Afghanistan. There's the Taliban, and then there's the Afghan government, which is supported and largely created by the U.S. in the hopes of engendering democracy in Afghanistan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the Afghan army is good at tactical strikes, but it's not what you would call a conquering army, right? No, or even a like controlling our own territory army. Okay. So then we come back to the U.S. We've been there for 18 years. When Trump is running for office, he says, I want no part of this mess. This is, in fact, very reflective of how the majority of Americans feel. Yeah, that's a popular position. <laughs> right. The American public is war weary and does not really see any benefit to staying there. Yeah, we're not really sure what we're doing there anymore. The original idea was after the September 11th attacks, we wanted to kick the Taliban out of power because they had sheltered Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda being the terrorist group that, of course, you know, crashed the planes into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and so forth. So we wanted to deprive them of territory uh, and make sure that they were not able to conduct additional major terrorist attacks in the West. So... To do that, the idea was to nation build in Afghanistan. Uh, it was a pretty maximal objective. The minimal objective probably would have been to strike the Taliban really hard and basically say, hey guys, you are responsible for what comes out of your territory, whether or not you did it yourselves. So we expect you to stop Al-Qaeda uh, from doing this again. And you're talking 2001. So we go into uh, Afghanistan in, two th in late 2001 after the 9-11 attacks. Right. You're talking about in 2001, 2002, even into 2003, telling the Taliban that they should then, that, that sorry, that they should control their territory? Yes, we should. Well, this is the minimal solution, right? Okay. Give us the Al-Qaeda leaders, you know, so we can bring them to justice and uh, we'll leave you alone. Right, more or less. But the uh, but the Taliban doesn't help us out with Afghanistan with uh, Al Qaeda. No, they don't. They decide to fight us, right? And we, through substantial expenditure of blood and treasure, we kick them out of the country, more or less. We beat them back into the mountains and particularly into, I guess, northwestern Pakistan. Right, Pakistan borders Afghanistan to the east. 
And Pakistan supports the Taliban. This is part of a, a larger India-Pakistan conversation we'll have in another episode. Yeah, probably pretty soon, actually. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe have to. Anyway, yeah. but all of which is to say, Afghanistan is this place. It's roughly the size of Texas. It is sparsely populated uh, in, in large swaths of the land. The Taliban has been pushed out after controlling the the country in the 90s. They have been pushed out of the cities, most of the cities by the US. There's now been a guerrilla war that they've been fighting over 18 years and have been winning. They now yes. control as much land. I bl- Steve, tell me if this, is, if this is about right. They control about as much land as they did before the US went in in 2001. Yeah, they actually control a majority of the territory, um, or at least contest a majority of the territory in Afghanistan. They don't really control that many population centers, though. The government is still pretty strong in the cities because it's much easier to defend cities. But when it comes to the rural areas, and almost all of Afghanistan is rural area, even without roads or anything like that, you know, it's much harder to extend control. And we've not been able to do it. Um, We may be able to send a patrol out and, you know, build bases and stuff like that. But as soon as we leave, the Taliban moves right back in and takes over. All right. So let's talk about basically the two, the two different presidential approaches to Afghanistan, both of which Trump has taken (laughs) in in his three years in office when Trump comes in. So he campaigns as a Afghan lever, right? I want to leave Afghanistan. This is no good. This is a popular position. I want out. Afghan exit. It's not as good as Brexit. It is not. Yeah. But, but he still has to stack. He still has to choose. Advice. Oh, here we go. Afghanistan. I'm not going to give it to you. Uh, come on, man. I'll give. All right. I'll give it to you. Anyway. So he wants to, he then has to stock. Uh, he has to choose advisors. Turns out not a lot of military advisors and national security folks are in favor of just a clean pullout. And there is a pair, so they convince him that he not only needs to stay in Afghanistan, that he needs to ramp up in Afghanistan. So there's a famous moment just three months into his presidency where he's sitting in Mar-a-Lago with uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping. And uh, he then shares that the US has dropped its most powerful non-nuclear atomic bomb on the Islamic State, which has moved into Afghanistan. Right. Over the next couple years, so through 2017 and 2018, I'm glossing over a lot here, but the American approach has been to increase troop presence in Afghanistan. We come in and with, not, when Trump comes in, there's 9,000 troops in Afghanistan. There's now, now there are 14. Today there are 14,000 troops. And part of the, uh, the canceled secret peace talks were, were a negotiation on American troop drawdown, specifically with our uh, envoy Khalilazad to draw down 7,000, half of the current 14,000 troops in Afghanistan over the next, I've seen it reported in different places, so X number of months. Yeah, and that would be a pretty significant move. Yeah, it absolutely would be a, a, a significant move. So one of the questions at hand, and this is one of the reasons I'm so confused, is what happened with Trump that made him go from a lever, I want to leave Afghanistan, to then I'm going to ramp up in Afghanistan, I'm going to choose advisors who give me opinions and information that is more conducive to their perspective 
which is to engage in Afghanistan with more war, with more troops, and then to all of a sudden engage in a peace talk process and then pull out of the peace talk process. <laughs> yeah. So um, the president has been called uh, mercurial. Uh, I think that's probably the nicest way you could describe um, his general decision-making process. Um, the more nitty-gritty answer is that he tends to be easily influenced by whoever is talking to him at the time. Uh, his first real national security advisor was this guy, McMaster. Right. H.R. McMaster is a very smart guy. Very he, smart. Yeah. Guy has Another a, guy with a PhD. Yeah. Guy has a PhD uh, from University of North Carolina, and he writes his dissertation on the relationship between military advisors and, uh, and the president and national security advisors during the Vietnam War. And part of his thesis is that military advisors need to be more forceful in, uh, in speaking truth to the civil side of the civil military decision-making apparatus when it comes to, to, uh, to conversations about war. McMaster and other Afghan senior leaders, uh, American senior leaders who cut their senior leadership teeth during the Afghanistan war, like David Petraeus, have advocated not only for putting troops into Afghanistan, but increasing the troops and committing to a kind of nation building operation like, like the U.S. did with South Korea and Germany during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Now, Steve, uh, you're frothing. You ready? Mm -hmm. Steve, <laughs> Steve, do you think that Afghanistan is a good case for nation building and long-term increased troop commitments the same way South Korea and Germany were? Go. I think that is risible, preposterous, and frankly absurd. I think it is the worst possible case for nation building along the lines of a post-war Germany or post-war Japan. Let me tell you why. I would love to hear this. Go for it. Okay, here we go. First of all, post-war Germany, guess how many U.S. troops were located within the borders of Germany at the end of World War II? How many? 1.6 million. Quite a okay. few. And quick reminder, what was, our, what was our peak troop number in Afghanistan? 100,000. Significantly less. Significantly less. Germany, very urban, lots of roads, fairly dense population. Afghanistan, very rural, super spread out, no infrastructure, no roads, no civil society. Much more difficult. One sixteenth the troop strength. <laughs> okay, when you say civil society, real quick for our listeners that don't know, what does civil society really mean? Right. So this is just the idea that at one point, you know, uh, Germany had, shall we say, a really bad stretch of governance uh, starting in 1933. But prior to that, they had a functional multi-party democracy and a centralized state with a bureaucracy and civil servants and stuff like that. Afghanistan hasn't had any of this for 40 years now. It's been 40 years of civil war. For a long time, especially when the Soviets were there, there basically wasn't one brick stacked on another in a lot of the cities. Like they were reduced to rubble. It was really bad. The entire administration was torn up root and branch, right? Civil society was destroyed. Nobody was, you know, everybody was bowling alone uh, to quote the title of the famous book about civil society. I'm not sure there were any functional bowling alleys left in Afghanistan, but there probably were in the 70s. You know, we had people in miniskirts walking around and stuff like that. Right. There were and, movies being played. But famously, the miniskirt photo. So part of the way that McMaster allegedly 
and other early Trump national security advisors convinced the president to turn to change his mind or at least delay peace negotiations or troop withdrawals in Afghanistan was through a picture of an Afghan woman wearing a miniskirt. Let's set aside all character assessments of the president when I say that as evidence of what a cosmopolitan society Afghanistan had in the 1970s. And right. it's, it's not wrong. Yeah, he's not wrong, but this was prior to literally three generations of brutal civil warfare. <laughs> well, international and then civil warfare, really, uh, with like multiple superpowers. So Afghanistan, I think, has had the worst single go of it uh, of any territory on Earth, other than maybe the Congo. And it's currently, according to some lists, it is currently the not only the most dangerous place in the world right now, it is also amongst the worst, if not the worst place for women. Yes. It's also the most corrupt in terms of people stealing from the government and stuff like that. Give me an example of, what, of the kind of corruption, particularly for Americans and American money. Yeah, sure. So we send a bunch of money over to Afghanistan. Uh, one of the reasons to do this is to pay the Afghan National Army. And we have recruiters basically uh, promise to bring in hundreds or thousands of troops from their local area to join the army. And a recent audit was conducted, basically suggesting that a lot of these troops were quote unquote, ghost troops. So these guys would pretend to bring in 100 guys and get paid for 100 guys, but only 30 would show up. So effectively, um, these were real people, but in most cases, uh, but they had pre-deserted the army. Like they never even got to the army in order to then desert. <laughs> okay, so the U.S. sends money for various development and military projects. One involves trying to recruit troops, and then the money just disappears and fewer bodies show up. Uh, another thing that happens is you try and after kicking the after the 2001 2002 early success in Afghanistan, there's now an attempt to build infrastructure throughout Afghanistan. Well, the Taliban then sees this and then they can try and destroy all development activity that they can because the only way to compete a truly significant competing vision of Afghan society to the Taliban is through the movement of commerce and people. Well, start blowing up the newly, the newly minted American money roads, and this is a good way to stop that competing vision of society from coming. Yeah, they also blow up all the schools, especially girls' schools. Nice bunch of guys. Another way that civil society has been attacked by the Taliban is that when in trying to put in democracy, Afghanistan has to have elections. This is a key part of dem dem democracy. Mm -hmm. Well, when an election starts coming up, what does the Taliban start to do, Steve? Well, uh, they start threatening to bomb polling places. And those are credible threats. They've done it in the past. Uh, and they're pretty good at driving, for instance, suicide bombers right into crowds of people waiting to vote. Hey, Steve, is there also a, uh, a long-delayed presidential election scheduled for later this month in Afghanistan? <laughs> Man, is that what you're telling me? It is. You couldn't write this shit. Incredible. It's so, to, again, to recap, uh, to recap uh, for the first two years of the Trump presidency, he reverts to the military orthodoxy on Afghanistan. We're going to put in troops. We're going to fight where we can. We're just going to try harder to roll this boulder uphill. Right. And then in 2019, he now starts 
to push, I guess it's probably the end of 2018, but in 2019, you start seeing reports in the, in the popular press saying that there is a peace process underway. Yeah, so keep in mind that uh, one of his campaign pledges in 2016 was in fact to exit the quote-unquote forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and he's you know, looking around at his reelection prospects in 2020. They're not looking quite as good as they did you know, last year. So he's trying really hard to satisfy some of those uh, campaign pledges, so whether or not it's actually a good idea. Well, it should be noted that his reelection, I believe his reelection um, motto is promises made, promises kept. Yep, that's right. Yeah. But it's okay. So among the more uh, cynical explanations for why you'd spend two years ramping up and then one year trying to cut out of Afghanistan is this. He, it'll improve his domestic, uh, domestic political situation. The other one, and this is one that you hear very smart people, uh, informed people say, is that the president of the United States is truly obsessed with trying to win a Nobel Prize. And you know who else won a Nobel Prize? Who who are the president happens to be obsessed with? Who is that, Steve? Well, the previous president. Yes, Barack Obama won a. Okay, so we won't get into Obama's Nobel Peace Prize and whether or not it was earned at the time or afterwards. But nonetheless, Trump very much, according to multiple sources, wants to win a Nobel Prize, and this is one of the reasons that you see him concerned so much with the majesty of summits, right? Yeah. Multiple summits with Kim Jong-un, summits in, he loves going to these big events. And the idea, and he said, I believe last week, that he would meet with uh, the Iranian, uh, with Rouhani. I believe he's even floated out that he would lead, meet with other Iranian leadership as well. But yeah. it's one of and these- he offered th- them a short-term loan, <laughs> which is incredible. <laughs> right. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's just a weird thing because I think that the world has taken stock of the current president and they've said, we, he's not dependable. He changes his mind. And frankly, he can just be won over with short-term gains. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of these things where if you want a lasting peace process in this very difficult, intractable, hard to manage war in Afghanistan, you then say, hey, why don't we have secret peace negotiations? We're not really going to involve the Afghan government with their substandard army. And they're just going to have to- And hopeless corruption. (laughs) Right, their hopeless corruption, their substandard army. We're going to have secret peace negotiations in Camp David, Maryland, the place where the launch of the Iraq war, the original Afghan war was planned. And we're going to have them over to try and negotiate this peace right before- Afghan government presidential elections. And uh, during the week of the September 11th anniversary, incidentally. Right. Let's not forget that. This is not... Super well-timed. It just, it doesn't paint the picture of a very well-coordinated national security apparatus. Yeah, that's putting it mildly. Yeah, okay. So this has fallen through, um, and it seems like the president has said the deal is off, the, the peace process is dead. And he's walking away from the table in a huff. Um, we've seen him do this before uh, in other places uh, and, and other situations like North Korea, right? But it seems like no process is ever really dead with this president. Um, what do we think the prospects are for um, the deal to be resurrected going forward? I think this is like 
this is a great place to talk about future steps. And I think your question is a good one. We started off with the question of what do you do about an 18-year-old intractable conflict and what comes next? This is where we are. Frankly, the president is committed to conversations, but conversations have typically been considered part of diplomacy. I don't know that he's committed to actual diplomacy. I don't know that he's committed to the long process of talking with your adversaries and intermediaries and your allies to try and negotiate a settlement that can be lasting. Uh, And I say this because, again, on Saturday night, the night before a secret peace summit with the Afghanistan, with the, with the Taliban was supposed to go down. He just announced that he was going to cancel the secret meetings. Now to get there, there's months and months of planning and negotiations that have been going on. 10 months specifically. (laughs) I mean, at least, okay, maybe it's not scorched, but that diplomatic process, that diplomatic groundwork has to at least have been battered, right? Uh, absolutely. I'm sure Mike Pompeo, the current Secretary of State, uh, is not pleased with the way things have gone down um, over the last couple of days, although he would never, ever, ever say so in public because um, he's too smart to do that in front of this president. But sorry, sorry, Steve, you asked what comes next. Honestly, I'll tell you, here's what I think comes next. I think that now that the peace talks uh, cat is out of the bag, now he's going to, I think we're going to wait and see what the domestic American domestic blowback is on this thing. Mm-hmm. Right now it doesn't, okay, the president looks like he's a bit disorganized and a grandstander and whatever else. But now it's out of the bag. If it, he doesn't start getting, you know, if, if, if the public doesn't take a hammer to his knees in, in polls, approval polls on him, I think that you see the peace talks, can, they continue. Yeah. And, and I think that the Afghan government, for all the, uh, the unflattering things that we've talked about vis-a-vis the Afghan government in the last few minutes, I, I think that they're just kind of left handing the ba- hand in, uh, holding a bag on what their future is going to look like. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of appetite in the United States for exiting Afghanistan uh, one way or another, right? Um, I think some people, like me, would prefer to do it really expeditiously because we feel like we've been throwing good money after bad for a really long time and it's time to basically cut losses. Others would prefer to have some kind of agreement or peace deal in place. Fine. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the Taliban is winning the war from a st- strategic point of view, right? They continue continue to bleed us. They continue to kill U.S. soldiers and the Afghan national government continues to not be able to control Afghanistan. So I think the Taliban is very much in the driver's seat, whether or not anybody cares to admit that. Right. Part of this is a question of resolve, right? Resolve to fight the conflict. As as they famously say, the Americans have the watches, but the Taliban have the time. Right. That's absolutely right. And furthermore, uh, look, I want to be able to push back on your position. I want to be able to say, we've put 18 years in, we still have thousands of troops there, there is political will that we can right this ship. However, the competing vision for Afghanistan from people that know far more than you and me is the South Korea-Germany model. And frankly, I just don't know how you get there. Yeah, especially because Afghanistan is a landlocked country with no ports. (laughs) <laughs> right. It's, it's kind of difficult. Right. The, the other part of that is that Afghanistan is also home. 
Afghanistan has become a home of terrorists. This is not just me saying this. This is the president. This is what experts say. Sure. We now have the remnants of Al-Qaeda and a new ISIS franchise, ISIS Khorasan, setting up shop in various parts of Afghanistan. But the Taliban isn't necessarily interested in having these guys hanging around, I contend. And the Taliban is also not a terrorist group. They're a nationalist group. They're interested in running an Islamic emirate in the borders of Afghanistan. They're not interested in striking the homeland of the United States, unlike ISIS or Al-Qaeda. So quickly to recap, for the United States, the American public wants out. The president wants out, but we're not sure how committed he is to that, because, and we don't know how capable he is of pulling that off, because the process of pulling out seems a bit messy yeah. and disorganized. A lot of moving parts. The, the Taliban wants to own Afghanistan, but they're not entirely prepared for what to do about terrorist organizations in Afghanistan. They know that they can probably take the Afghan national government. Eventually which we have propped up, yes, because the Afghan national government, the Afghan national army has not been good at taking and holding land. So what we have is this really complex situation. And bizarrely, there isn't really a clean answer. The cleanest answer out there is yours. It's pull out quickly. Yeah, it's it's not a very satisfying answer uh, because nobody likes to lose, especially not Americans, right? And when we do lose, we need to find a way to call it something else, which is why this dialogue is important. It's actually just symbolically important, I think, domestically and internationally. Uh, It's not substantively important. Substantively, I think the facts on the ground are clear. Uh, We have lost and will continue to lose, and we just don't want to be there anymore. The, the The one last wrinkle I'd add is we also don't know if any negotiated peace with the Taliban, would they'd even be able to enforce it because it's unclear how much, how much the word of the Taliban negotiators would actually hold amongst Taliban rank and file. Yeah, so I think you solve that problem by getting the fuck out of there and not caring one way or another. <sighs> yeah. Um, Again, not a very satisfying answer, but probably the right answer. <laughs> this is a tough one, and we will keep watching because, frankly, now that Afghanistan is back on the front pages of American newspapers... It'll be interesting to see how the president, who is a very, let's just say, dedicated observer of the American media, reacts going forward. Yeah, great. I think we're going to leave it there. Thanks a lot, Sooms. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week. Hello, valued listeners. If you like what you're hearing on The Elucidators, please do us a solid and tell everyone you know about the podcast. If you really love us, please also feel free to rate us five stars on your podcast store at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever, and write us a glowing review, because we rely on your positive feedback and word of mouth to grow and improve. And if you have comments or questions, you can email us at allonewordtheelucidators at gmail.com or tweet us at the underscore elucidators. We may even answer your question on the show.